Today we're going to talk about the third miracle uh, that's recorded in John's Gospel. Uh, and we're going to have some slides. I hope Mark's working diligently trying to make that happen. But, uh, but Charlotte was born with a handicap. Uh, or maybe it was the result of an accident or an illness early in her life. Uh, the records disagree on that. But what they all say is that Charlotte suffered from severe, ongoing chronic pain for her entire life. Her family was very religious. Her grandfather and her elder brother were both well-respected ministers. And Charlotte thought that she ought to be serving God, too. But in honesty, her physical condition didn't even allow her to go to church regularly. Charlotte loved music and poetry, but she deeply resented the constraints that her handicap placed on her life. And as the years went by, she grew increasingly bitter to God. She knew that she shouldn't sin like this, but the harder she tried not to, the more she did and the more bitter she became. By the time Charlotte was 30, she was bound by chains. Chains not only of a physical condition that she could do nothing about, but spiritual and mental chains as well. It's then that she met a well-known pastor from Switzerland, Cesar Malin, when he came to spend some time in their home. One evening, over a conversation, Reverend Malin asked her if she had peace with God. Charlotte resented even being asked such a question. And Reverend Malin listened patiently as she responded with all the bitterness and anger that had built up over the years. She also resented the fact that he said her physical condition should not preclude her from accepting Jesus Christ as her Savior. But she was so angry that she refused to even talk to him, to answer him, and wouldn't speak to him for days, even though he was a guest in her home. In many ways, there she is, in many ways, Charlotte story parallels that of the invalid that you just heard Alex read about. Both were bound by chains of a physical condition over which they had no control, but both needed to be set free of something that was far more significant than their handicap. In this third miracle that's recorded in John, we come to a transition point. The previous miracles were done more or less in private, with only a few individuals actually being aware that a miracle was even taking place. But now, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's about to do a miracle that's going to come to the attention of the Pharisees and other religious leaders. And unfortunately, despite Despite the well-known prophecy from Isaiah 53 that says the lame will leap like a deer, 
the Pharisees and spiritual leaders aren't going to believe. They're going to use this miracle as an excuse to try to kill Jesus. The miracle that we're considering today is sometimes called the healing at the pool. Others call it the healing of the invalid. Personally, I prefer a different title. I like to call it the miracle of questions. Because when I read this passage, it raises in my mind a lot of questions. Some of those are rather trivial. Some are very significant. Deep questions with answers that have an impact on exactly what we believe. Some that are fundamental to our faith. Today we're going to consider some of those questions. However, I don't want you to think that the passage only has questions. It's full of deep truth. Truth that uncovers itself one layer at a time, much like a Matriska doll. As you open it, every time you open it, you find something more inside. And as we dig into this, we're going to find that that's the truth of this passage. So let's get our hands a little dirty digging in. On the surface, at the top level, the outside of the doll, if you would, the miracle seems straightforward. Jesus encounters a lame man. He heals him, tells him to get up and walk, and the man does We see Jesus perform almost exactly the same miracle in Luke chapter 5 when he heals a man that's lowered through the roof, that favorite story of kids in Sunday school, Uh, and he uses almost exactly the same words. And then in Acts, we see Peter perform a miracle, healing a paralytic, using almost the same words. So as miracles go, it seems pretty straightforward, at least as miracles go. John starts out by telling us that Jesus was in Jerusalem for one of the festivals. But very uncharacteristically, he doesn't tell us which festival it is. The law that's recorded in Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verse 16, tells the Jewish men that they should go to Jerusalem three times a year to worship at the temple, at Passover, at Pentecost, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. Additionally, in Jesus' time, the Feast of Purim was a very important annual celebration, and there were numerous other feasts every year. So the first question that comes to mind might be, which feast? Since John didn't tell us, it's been the subject of much debate over the centuries. Various scholars have made a good case for each one of the three miracles that's recorded in Deuteronomy and for several of the optional feasts as well. But since Jesus didn't tell us, excuse me, since John didn't tell us, I can only conclude that he, motivated by the Holy Spirit, didn't think that we needed to know. And therefore, it's probably not worth our time wasting a lot of effort trying to figure out. The only thing that we can say for sure is that Jesus was in Jerusalem for a festival. So the first question is going to go unanswered. Not a very good start for a sermon, is it? John continues. Now there is in Jerusalem, 
near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades or porches. Now, wait a minute, John, come on. You won't tell us which feast it is that Jesus is attending, but then you give us all this information about a pool and a gate. Why? Well, I suspect that John, motivated by the Holy Spirit again, can't help but see a link, a connection, between the location at which this miracle is occurring and what Jesus taught about being the Good Shepherd. John's going to record that in just a few pages in chapter 10. And he, as he's sitting there thinking about the sheep gate, I'm sure his mind races forward to that passage that will become the seventh verse of chapter 10, where Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep. Jesus, the gate for the sheep, is about to perform a really important miracle at the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate, some of your translations might possibly say the Sheep Market instead, was on the northeast corner of the city wall in Jesus' day. And as you'd probably guess, it earned its name because it's the gate through which most of the animals entered the city for the temple sacrifice, primarily sheep. It's not the closest gate to the temple. That would be the Golden Gate. No San Francisco connection. Uh, that would be the Golden Gate. Uh, but the Sheep Gate is facing the large flat area north of Jerusalem, terrain that is suitable for herding and for moving flocks. And so it had become the traditional entrance. John goes on to tell us that near the gate was the pool of Bethesda. In Jesus' day, that pool was outside the city wall, and it would have been passed by everyone as they entered the city through the sheep gate. It would certainly have been used for watering the animals, but it wasn't a pool like those of us that grew, in the, grew up in the country might imagine, but more like a city swimming pool or a spa today. For centuries, biblical scholars questioned the actual existence of such a pool, with many claiming that John was just speaking figuratively and that the five colonnades were meant to represent the five books of Moses, particularly since five-sided structures were almost unheard of in the architecture of Jesus' time. But then, in 1888, while doing work on St. Anne's Church in that section of Jerusalem, a pool was uncovered. This area has been built and rebuilt repeatedly throughout the centuries. Nicole, you don't need to leave. It doesn't bother me. And there are numerous churches and chapels, one built upon a previous one from generation through generation. So it took the archaeologist until 1964, 1988 to 1964, to sort it all out and figure out that, yes, indeed, the pool that they'd found was indeed the pool of Bethesda. 
But that leaves an interesting question. What about the five colonnades that surrounded it? Well, it turns out you don't have to have a five-sided structure to be surrounded by five colonnades. The pool actually appears to have had an upper half and a lower half with a colonnade running right through the center for a total of five colonnades. So once again, archaeologists have shown that the Bible was exactly right even when men didn't think it could be. Verse 3 goes on to tell us that there were a great number of disabled people lying there, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Some couldn't walk well, some couldn't walk at all. It must have been an extremely depressing sight. We generally aren't used to seeing crippled, handicapped people begging to survive here in America. But Chris and I certainly saw that when we were in Ethiopia. Crippled and deformed people just lying beside the street, sometimes coming into the street, if they were able, to beg just to survive. I clearly remember one old man with severely deformed legs sitting on a piece of wood with a small wheel at each corner, pushing himself along with his hands, begging. Other than seeing starving children, there aren't many more depressing sights. Living in this country, where such scenes are almost unheard of, it's hard to visualize the extent of the pain and the suffering that Jesus must have seen as he approached that area. So another question comes to mind. Why are all of these handicapped people there instead of out in other areas where there was less competition and more opportunities for their begging? Well, the answer is found in verse 4. Now, if you're reading from an NIV or an RSV or a few other translations, you may be surprised to see that verse 4 is not there, nor are a few words at the end of verse 3. They're missing. Why are they left out? And what does that say about the validity of this passage of Scripture? The answer to the why is simple. Many of the most early Greek texts don't contain these words. And so translators believe they were added to later versions to explain what's going to be said in verse 7 in just a moment. So the translators, in order to be accurate to the earliest text, leave them out of their translation. And they're probably right to do so. The missing words are waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. We don't have time this morning to discuss this in detail, but there are certainly some good arguments for leaving the verse out. But even if the verse is not included in the scripture, the explanation it provides may still be valid. God stopped talking in the written word with the last prophet when the Old Testament ended 400 years earlier. We tend to think of him as being completely silent 
during the several hundred years before Christ, and we discard the notion of anything miraculous taking place until Jesus comes. But remember, these are still God's chosen people, and there's nothing that precludes God from doing something miraculous for them during the intertestamental period. No more than there is to preclude him from doing miracles for us today. Perhaps an angel actually did stir up the water, and someone was healed. The obvious fact is that something must have been happening to draw a large crowd of sick and disabled to that very spot in the belief that that is exactly what was going to happen. Some scholars would like to write off any potential healings as just being the natural result of a certain type of mineral water. Well, I doubt if it's that simple, but God can do his miracles any way he chooses. The bottom line seems to be that something must have been happening. Healings must have been taking place on a fairly regular basis. Otherwise, I'm sure that crowd would have thinned out over the years. Now we come to the main event. Starting with verse 5, one man had been an invalid there for 38 years. When Jesus saw him stretched out by the pool and knew how long he had been there, he said, do you want to get well? What kind of a question is that to ask somebody who's been crippled for 38 years? Of course I want to get well. That's exactly why I'm here at this pool today. I read nine or ten different commentaries preparing for the day, and I think that the only thing that they all agreed on was, this, was that Jesus' question seemed strange, out of place, and probably unnecessary. Of course I want to be well. But then, when we hear the man's actual answer, maybe the question wasn't so strange after all. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Instead of a straightforward yes, he makes an excuse. How often do we do that when God or someone in church asks us, ask us something? Instead of yes, we make an excuse. Well, the invalid's excuse actually seems pretty reasonable at first. I can't do it myself, and I'm not worthy enough that anyone wants to help me. Clearly, he believed that healing was possible, but that it took an action on his part or an action by someone else to make it happen. He couldn't do it himself, and he wasn't good enough that anybody would stay around and help him. But I can't help but wonder how serious this man really was about his healing. After 38 years, maybe he'd finally worked his way up the pecking order to that very best location at the pool, the place that was sheltered from the hot summer sun and the cold winter winds, 
but was still visible to the passers-by so it wouldn't impact his begging? Could he maybe have positioned himself closer to the pool so that he was just able to roll in at the right moment? After 38 years, was he comfortable with the Jewish welfare system, more comfortable than he was desiring to be well? Perhaps Jesus' question was not meant to get an honest answer, but to get the man to perform an honest self-assessment. What did he really want? What did he really need? Well, if so, Jesus doesn't give him time to rationalize. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. I would have loved to have seen this. How did the man react? His healing was instantaneous. But did he hesitate? Did he get up cautiously to test his sense of balance after 38 years on a mat? Or did he leap to his feet and dance? What was the expression on his face? What did he say? We don't know the answers to any of those questions, but we do know that he picked up his mat and walked. And that's the miracle. But now, the aftermath. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, we've heard so often about the Pharisees, about their attitude and their laws for keeping the Sabbath, that we might overlook a very interesting question right here. Why did they confront him about carrying his mat on the Sabbath, but not ask him about being healed? It's hard to find opportunities to defend the Pharisees. But in this case, maybe, at least at this one point, they deserve to be given a break. It doesn't seem that they actually saw the miracle take place, but that they encountered the man a little later, perhaps on his way home to tell his family the great news, still carrying his mat. And it's very possible that they didn't even recognize the man in that situation. Have you ever encountered a friend in a completely unexpected location and not recognized him or her? I have. Or maybe they'd never even seen this man before, so they didn't know a miracle had taken place. If so, the comment that they made would have been perfectly normal reaction to seeing a man carrying a mat on the Sabbath day. And in fairness to them, they don't seem to have pushed the issue further when the healed invalid responded, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Instead, they merely asked the obvious question, who would issue such a dumb order? And when the man replied, I don't know, they appear to have let it drop. But then the account takes an unexpected twist. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus that had made him well. We'll come back to this ending in a minute. But first, let's go a couple of levels deeper into this passage 
and consider a few more of those key questions that I mentioned earlier. First is a very serious question that we all ask all the time. Why? Why did Jesus heal this particular man out of the vast multitude of sick that were there? Or why didn't Jesus heal all or at least some of the others? The answers to such questions are difficult. Difficult to really understand because they deal with the very nature of God himself. As mortals, we can never fully understand God's nature. Or perhaps to say it more correctly, we can never even have a slight inkling into his full nature. It's also a difficult question to answer because the answers tend to to completely eliminate us from any active role in the equation. And Satan has done a very, very good job of convincing us that we should be in control. I believe you'll find a hint to the answer back in verse 2, when John tells us the name of the pool. The word Bethesda actually means house of mercy or house of grace. And that's what this miracle is primarily all about. This isn't a miracle that just shows Jesus has the power to heal. He shows that beautifully in the second miracle. But this is a miracle to show Jesus dispensing grace and mercy as only God can. And in doing that, it provides us with a reference point that we can use when we face situations when we're tempted to ask, why did or why didn't God do something? Back in Exodus 33:19, God is about to show Moses his goodness. Not his full glory, as Moses had requested, but his goodness. Immediately before doing so, God makes one of the most important statements in the Bible. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Goodness is a characteristic of God, just like his holiness and his omniscience. He applies his goodness perfectly, but he applies it as he sees fit, without need to consult anyone else. Of course, Jesus knew this truth very well. In the very next chapter, Jesus tells us, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. In this miracle, we see God having mercy on one whom he's chosen to have mercy. We see God drawing one to Jesus in a completely unambiguous manner. I'm absolutely convinced that before the creation of anything that was created, God had already selected this individual for that particular role. Jesus didn't have to hunt for the right person in order to perform this miracle. Instead, he could go straight to that one man on whichever of those five colonnades he might be laying, wherever he was in that great multitude, because Jesus was delivering God's grace and mercy 
to the one individual in that multitude of equally needy individuals that God had selected at that particular moment. We'll see a similar situation occur in a few weeks when Brian preaches to us about the miracle of Jesus healing the man born blind. In John 9, it says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Our human reaction is typically, that's just not fair. But when we really begin to understand a little about God's mercy, we have a very different response. Paul describes that response in Romans 9.14 and following, quoting the same verse that we just read from Exodus. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on but on God's mercy. Humanly, we may find this situation unfair. But let me ask you to consider another question. Would it be better to suffer for 38 years as a paralytic and then experience God's mercy? Or to live a life full of all, free of all pain and suffering, but never experience God's grace? Well, that's often the case. There are just too many accounts of those who accept God's mercy only when they're at rock bottom, when they're in excruciating pain as they face death, not to believe that God uses the events of our life as one of his tools in dispensing his mercy. This, of course, is not to say that we can't experience his grace without suffering, but since an act of acceptance is needed on our part, remember, the invalid had to stand and carry his bed and walk, uh, God certainly uses circumstances in our life to get our attention so that we may accept what he offers freely. Which brings us to the final question. How does the passage apply to me? John tells us the answer. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This miracle provides a clear picture of that process. Jesus comes to a mass of impotent people unable to help themselves. Some are blind, just as we're naturally blind to our true spiritual condition. Proverbs 4.19 says, But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Others were lame, crippled, and unable to walk. They were stumbling. Still others were paralyzed, maybe even unable to use their hands. Spiritually blind, unable to walk, and completely lacking in the ability to do any of those good works that we would like to think can earn our way to heaven. The great multitude 
provides a perfect symbolic picture of the unrepentant masses that are bound by the chains of sin, blind, lame, paralyzed, with no way to break those chains. From that crowd, God, in his mercy, guides Jesus to one specific individual to heal, not because of anything that invalid had done, or even because of his faith. If you listen carefully to what John wrote, you'll find that there's no mention of faith. In fact, it seems very clear that the man had none whatsoever when he was healed. He didn't even know that it was Jesus doing the healing. It wasn't until later, at the end of the account, see, I told you we'd get back to that end part, okay? At the end of the account, that the man is given a choice, the same choice that each of us has to make, the choice to break the chain that bound him, that binds us. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Repeatedly throughout the Gospels, Jesus gives individuals that same choice, just using different words. To the rich young ruler, he says, sell, give to the poor, and follow me. To Nicodemus, it's a detailed explanation about the second birth. To the woman caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more. To this man, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Some have interpreted this to mean that the man's illness was caused by his sin. I personally find that a very difficult view because the man has already suffered for 38 years. Even if his suffering had started as an infant, it's unlikely he's going to live another 38 years to suffer. What could happen to him on earth could hardly be worse than what he'd already experienced. But what could happen to him eternally certainly could be. In his mercy, Jesus was giving him a choice. Follow me, the only way to break the chains that truly bind, the only way to overcome the consequences of our sin nature, or reject me and face eternity without me. And we don't know what the man did. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus that had made him well. This can be read positively. He believed, and like many new Christians, he couldn't wait to tell somebody else. What better place to start than with those that had just been questioning him about his experience? Or, it can be read negatively, he rejects the offer and, like Judas, turns the information over to the authorities. Each one of us, at one time or another, has to face the same choice. If we accept, say yes to Christ, it takes us to yet another level but we're going to save that for next week. Or we say no. A no is almost always accompanied by one of the same excuses that the invalid used. No, I can't do it myself. Or no, I'm not good enough. But that's the great thing about the gift of mercy. 
God gives it freely, as the invalid discovered, without have us having to do or be anything except accepting. In Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourself, it is the gift of God. And then in Titus 3, 4, and 5, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. If we haven't said yes to his offer of grace and mercy, this is the time to do so. It's time to accept the real gift that he offered the invalid and that he offers each of us. That grace and mercy is sufficient for whatever we've done in the past or for whatever we may face in the future. It's sufficient to break any chain that binds us. When we accept him, he removes the chain that binds us spiritually, emotionally, and perhaps even physically, and changes us into something that he can and he will use, despite whatever shortcomings we think we might have. Back at the beginning of the sermon, I told you about Charlotte being presented that choice. Initially, she resented the fact that she was asked. And even more, she resented the fact that her handicap was dismissed. She was bitter about Reverend Malin's seemingly callous attitude. But God spoke to her through this man, and eventually she did become a Christian. She committed her life to God. God broke her chains. He broke her chains and healed her spiritually. He broke her chains and restored a proper mental attitude. But he never did heal her body. He just went on to use her exactly as she was, in a far greater way than she or anyone else could ever have imagined. Charlotte would go on to write more than 150 songs, hymns, many that are still used in the Church of England today. Every year, on the anniversary of her conversion, Reverend Malin would send Charlotte a letter of encouragement. After the 14th such letter, she sat down and wrote her spiritual autobiography in song. It would become, along with Amazing Grace, one of the most influential of all Christian songs. Billy Graham would choose its title as the title of his autobiography. In a very real sense, just as I am is the autobiography of each and every one of us when we accept Jesus as our Savior. As Mark comes to lead in our final song, if you haven't already done so, do what Charlotte did as she recorded in this third verse of her famous song, Come. <laughs>